0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, Fiction Editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Falls by George Saunders, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 1996.
1: His childhood dreams had been so bright. He had hoped for so much. It couldn't be true that he was a nobody. Although, on the other hand... What kind of somebody spends the best years of his life swearing at a photocopier? Not that he was complaining. Not that he was unaware. He had plenty to be thankful for.
0: The story was chosen by Will Mackin, whose first book, Bring Out the Dog, was published in 2018 and won the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for debut short story collection. Hi, Will. Hey, Deborah. Thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: You at some point took a, a writing seminar with George Saunders, is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. Um, I signed up for the summer literary seminars in uh, Saint Petersburg, Russia. Never having read any of his stories, I just saw a picture of him uh, wearing these boots that I thought were cool. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I figured he was cool too, and I was right.
0: Uh huh. And and when you got to uh, Saint Petersburg and you met George, what was your impression?
1: Well, right away, I mean, he just kind of exudes this calmness and kindness, and uh, I got along with him really well, um, enjoyed his class. It was the first fiction seminar I'd taken, and uh, he explained things in a, in a very mechanical way. I mean, there was definitely an artistic undercurrent to it, but I remember him at the chalkboard one day drawing a a wiring diagram about how a story should work and it was it, it looked just like a spark plug diagram on a <laughs> on an engine <laughs> like these are all this is how it should fire when and how and and it really made sense to me
0: uh-huh and at that point did you decide to read his work
1: I did and the in the first story I read was the falls which is um why I chose it i just it hit me as something impossible almost it seemed i would read stories before but this one was just genuinely Original. It felt so clean and new, and um, no, I loved it.
0: Had you been reading a lot of contemporary fiction at that point, or
1: was this a... no, not as much? No, I was. I was active duty in the Navy, and I'd gotten this two weeks off to go to the seminar. And uh, I mean, I was reading a lot of technical diagrams. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was. I was flying at the time, so that's probably why George's approach appealed to me.
0: Yeah, and when you. When you first read this story, The Falls, uh, without telling us what happens in the story, what did you mm-hmm. feel it was about?
1: I felt it was about the protagonist just trying to get rid of his self doubt.
0: Mm-hmm. And that appealed to you personally, or <laughs>
1: because that's a little bit. I mean, <laughs> it, it, you know, my time in the Navy it was, uh, I look back on it now and it seems like I was always trying to be somebody like a type a person and i'm not naturally and so to read this and kind of follow the protagonist's thoughts and his um trying to come to terms with who he really is versus who he wants to be that that struck a chord
0: Mm -hmm. what was it about the story that seemed impossible
1: i think just that there's no dialogue in it um that didn't hit me at first but looking back on it I see like it's Completely inner, it's just the thoughts of these two men, and it seems absolutely flawless, like the thoughts are so perfectly lined out. I know George talks about how you know when he writes how one sentence feeds into the next, how he reads one sentence and he likes it, and then he reads the other sentence and he likes it <laughs> and, and, and it, um I know that one of the New Yorker editors, I think it was Bill Bufort, said that to him, and uh I could see that in this story. It's just line by line, it's fascinating. And then as a whole, it's also fascinating how it works.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's not give too much away. So we'll we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Will Mackin reading The Falls by George Saunders.
1: The Falls. Morse found it nerve-wracking to cross the St. Jude grounds just as the school was being dismissed, because he felt that if he smiled at the uniformed Catholic children, they might think he was a wacko or pervert, and if he didn't smile, they might think he was an old grouch made bitter by the world, which surely he felt by certain yardsticks he was. Sometimes he wasn't entirely sure that he wasn't even a wacko of sorts, although certainly he wasn't a pervert, of that he was certain, or relatively certain. Being overly certain he was relatively sure was what eventually made one a wacko. So humility was the thing, he thought, arranging his face into what he thought would pass for an expression of a man thinking fondly of his own youth. A face devoid of wackiness or perversion, humility was the thing. The school sat among maples on a hillside that sloped down to the wide Taganac River, which narrowed and picked up speed and crashed over Bryce Falls a mile downstream near Morse's small rental house. His embarrassingly small rental house, actually, which nevertheless was the best he could do and for which he knew he should be grateful, although at times he wasn't a bit grateful and wondered where he'd gone wrong. Although at other times he was quite pleased with the crooked little blue shack covered with peeling lead paint and felt great pity for the poor stiffs renting hazardous shitholes even smaller than his hazardous shithole, which was how he felt now as he came down into the bright sunlight and continued his pleasant walk home along the green river lined with expensive mansions whose owners he deeply resented. Morse was tall and thin and as gray and sepulchral as a church about to be condemned. His pants were too short and his face periodically broke into a tense, involuntary grin that quickly receded as if he had just suffered a sharp pain. At work, he was known to punctuate his conversations with brief, wild laughs and gusts of inchoate enthusiasm and subsequent embarrassment, expressed by a sudden plunging of his hands into his pockets, after which he would yank his hands out of his pockets, too ashamed of his own shame to stand there merely grimacing for even an instant longer. From behind him on the path came a series of rhythmic whacking steps. He glanced back to find Aldo Cummings, an odd duck, who, though nearly 40, still lived with his mother. Cummings didn't work and had his bangs cut straight across and wore gym shorts even in the dead of winter. Morse hoped Cummings wouldn't collar him, and when Cummings didn't collar him and, in fact, passed by without even returning his nervous, self-effacing grin. Morse felt guilty for having suspected Cummings of wanting to collar him. Then miffed that Cummings, who collared even the City Hall cleaning staff, hadn't tried to collar him. Had he done something to offend Cummings? It worried him that Cummings might not like him, and it worried him that he was worried about whether a nut like Cummings liked him. Was he some kind of worrywart? It worried him why should he be worried when all he was doing was going home to enjoy his beautiful children without a care in the world? Although, on the other hand, there was Robert's piano recital, which was sure to be a disaster, since Robert never practiced, and they had no piano, and weren't even sure when or where the recital was, and Annie, God bless her, had eaten the cardboard keyboard he'd made for Robert to practice on. When he got home, he would make Robert a new cardboard keyboard, and beg him to practice. He might even order him to practice. He might even order him to make his own cardboard keyboard, then practice, although this was unlikely because when he became forceful with Robert, Robert blubbered, and Morse loved Robert so much he couldn't stand to see him blubbering, although if he didn't become forceful with Robert, Robert tended to lie on his bed with his baseball glove over his face. Good God, but life could be less than easy. Not that he was unaware that it could certainly be a lot worse. But to go about in such a state, pulse high, face red, worried sick that someone would notice how nervous one was, was certainly less than ideal. And he felt sure that his body was secreting all kinds of harmful chemicals, and that the more he worried about the harmful chemicals, the faster they were pouring out of wherever it was they came from. When he got home, he would sit on the steps and enjoy a few minutes of centered breathing while reciting his mantra, which was, calm down, calm down, before the kids came running out and grabbed his legs, and sometimes even bit him quite hard in their excitement, and Ruth came out to remind him in an angry tone that he wasn't the only one who'd worked all day, and as he walked, he gazed out at the beautiful Taganek in an effort to absorb something of her serenity, but instead found himself obsessing about the faulty latch on the gate, which theoretically could allow Annie to toddle out of the yard and into the river, and he pictured himself weeping on the shore, and to eradicate this thought, started manically whistling the stars and stripes forever, while slapping his hands against his side. Cummings bobbed past the restored gristmill, pleased at having so decisively snubbed Morse, a smug member of the power elite in this conspiratorial village, and one of the League of Oppressive Oppressors, who wouldn't know the lot of the struggling artist if the lot of the struggling artist came up with great and beleaguered dignity and bit him on the polyester ass. Over the Pine Street Bridge was a fat cloud. To an interviewer in his head, Cummings said he felt the possible rain made the fine bright day even finer and brighter because of the possibility of its loss, the possibility of its ephemeral loss, the ephemeral loss of the day to the fleeting passages of time. Preening time, preening nascent time, the blackguard. Time made wastrels of us all, did it not, with its gaunt cheeks, and its tombly reverberations, and its admonishing glances with bony fingers? Bony fingers pointed as if in admonishment, as if to say, I admonish you to recall your own eventual nascent death, which being on its way is forthcoming, forthcoming mortal coil and don't think its ghastly pall won't settle on your furrowed brow pronto. Once I select your faded number from my very dusty book with this self-same bony finger, with which I am pointing at you now, you vanity of vanities, you luster, you shirker of duties, as you shuffle after your worldly pleasure centers. That was some good stuff. If only he could remember it through the rest of his stroll, and the coming storm, to scrawl in a passionate hand in his yellow pad, He thought with longing ardor of the blank yellow pad, he thought. He thought with longing ardor of his blank yellow pad on which, this selfsame day, his fame would be wrought, no, on which, this selfsame day, the first meager scrawlings which would presage his nascent, burgeoning fame would be wrought, or rather writ, and someday someone would dig up his yellow pad and virtually cry Eureka when they realized what a teeming fragment of minutiae, and yet critical minutiae had been found, and wouldn't all kinds of literary women in short black jackets want to meet him then? In the future he must always remember to bring his yellow pad everywhere. The town had spent a mint on the riverfront, and now the burbling, smashing Taganek ran past a nail salon and a restored gristmill, and a café in a former coal tower, and a quaint public square where some high school boys with odd haircuts were trying to kick a soccer ball into the partly open window of a parked colt with a joy so belligerent and obnoxious that it seemed they believed themselves the first boys ever to walk the face of the earth, which Morse found worrisome. And what if Annie grew up and brought one of these freaks home? Not one of these exact freaks, of course, since they were approximately fifteen years her senior, although it was possible that at twenty she could bring home one of these exact freaks, who would then be approximately thirty-five, albeit over Morse's dead body. Although in his heart he knew he wouldn't make a stink about it, even if she did bring home one of the freaky snots who had just succeeded in kicking the ball into the colt and were now jumping around joyfully, bumping their bare chests together while grunting like walruses. And in fact he knew perfectly well that rather than expel the thirty-five-year-old freak from his home, he would likely offer him coffee or a soft drink in an attempt to dissuade him from corrupting Annie, who for God's sake was just a baby. Because Morse knew very well the kind of man he was at heart, timid of conflict, conciliatory to a fault, pathetically gullible, and with a pang he remembered Len Beck, whose senior year had tricked him into painting his ass blue. If there had actually been a secret Blue asters Club, if the ass painting had in fact been required for membership, it would have been bad enough. But to find out on the eve of one's prom that one had painted one's ass blue simply for the amusement of a clique of unfeeling swimmers who subsequently supplied certain photographs to one's prom date, that was too much. And he had been glad, quite glad, actually, at least at first, when Beck, drunk, had tried and failed to swim to fully snag and been swept over the falls in the dark of night, the great tragedy of their senior year a tragedy that had mercifully eclipsed Morse's blue ass in the class's collective memory. Two red-headed girls sailed by in a green canoe, drifting with the current. They yelled something at him, and he waved. Had they yelled something insulting? Certainly it was possible. Certainly today's children had no respect for authority, although one had to admit there was always Ben Akbar, their neighbor, a little Pakistani genius who sometimes made Morse look askance at Robert. Ben was an all-state cellist on the wrestling team who was unfailingly sweet to smaller kids and toll-painted and could do a one-handed push-up. Ah, Ben Schmen, Morse thought. Ten Ben's weren't worth a single Robert, although he couldn't think of one area in which Robert was superior or even equal to Ben, the little smarty pants, although certainly he had nothing against Ben, Ben being a mere boy, but if Ben thought for a minute that His being more accomplished and friendly and talented than Robert somehow entitled him to lord it over Robert, Ben had another thing coming. Not that Ben ever actually lorded it over Robert. On the contrary, Robert often lorded it over Ben or tried to, although he always failed because Ben was too sharp to be taken in by a little con man like Robert. And Morse's face reddened at the realization that he had just characterized his own son as a con man. Boy, oh boy, could life be a torture. Could life ever force a fellow into a strange, dark place from which he found himself doing graceless, unforgivable things, like casting aspersions on his beloved firstborn? If only he could escape Corp and do something significant, such as discovering a critical vaccine. But it was too late. He had never been good at biology and, in fact, had flunked it twice, but some kind of moment in the sun would certainly not be unwelcome. If only he could be a tortured prisoner of war, who not only refused to talk, but led the other prisoners in rousing hymns at great personal risk. If only he could witness an actual miracle, or save the president from an assassin, or win the lotto and give it all to charity. If only he could be part of some great historical event, like the codgers you saw on PBS who had been slugged in the Haymarket riots or known Medgar Evers, or lost beatific mothers on the Titanic. His childhood dreams had been so bright, he had hoped for so much. It couldn't be true that he was a nobody, although, on the other hand, what kind of somebody spends the best years of his life swearing at a photocopier? Not that he was complaining. Not that he was unaware he had plenty to be thankful for. He loved his children. He loved the way Ruth looked in bed by candlelight when he had wedged the laundry basket against the door that wouldn't shut because the house was settling alarmingly. Loved the face she made when he entered her. Loved the way she made light of the blue-ass story. Although he didn't particularly love the way she sometimes trotted it out when they were fighting, for example, on the dreadful night when the piano had been repossessed. Or the way she blamed his passivity for their poverty within earshot of the kids. Or the fact that at the height of her infatuation with Robert's karate instructor, Master Lee, she had been dragging Robert to class as often as six times a week, the poor little exhausted guy. But the point was, in spite of certain difficulties, he truly loved Ruth. So what if their bodies were failing and fattening, and they undressed in the dark, and Robert admired strapping athletes on television while looking askance at Morse's rounded pimpled back? It didn't matter because someday when Robert had a rounded pimpled back of his own, he would appreciate his father, who had subjugated his petty personal desires for the good of his family. Although, God willing, Robert would have a decent career by then and couldn't afford to join a gym and see a dermatologist. Amor stopped in his tracks, wondering, what in the world two little girls were doing alone in a canoe speeding toward the falls, apparently oarless? Cummings walked along, gazing into a mythic, dusky arboreal wood that put him in mind of the archetypal vision he had numbered 114 in his Book of Archetypal Visions, on which mom that nitwit had recently spilled grape pop. Vision 114 concerned standing on the edge of an ancient, dense wood at twilight, with the safe harbor of one's abode behind and the deep wild ahead, replete with dark, fearsome bears looming from albeit dingy covens. What would that twitching, nervous wage-slave Morse think if he were to dip his dim brow into the heady brew that was the archetypal visions? Morse, ha, Cummings thought, I'm glad I'm not Morse, a dullard in corporate pants, trudging home to his threadbare brats in the gathering loam, born like the rest of his ilk, with their feet of clay thrust down the mauve conventionality, content to cheerfully work lemming-like in moribund cubicles, while comparing their stocks and bonds between bouts of tedious lawn mowing, then chortling while holding their suckling brats to the Nintendo breast. That was a powerful image, Cummings thought, one that he might develop some brooding night into a Herculean prome that some Hollywood smoothie would eat like a hotcake so he could buy a mom Alexis, and go with someone leggy and blousy to Paris. After taking some time to build up his body with arm curls, so as to captivate her physically as well as mentally. And in Paris, the leggy girl in perhaps tight leather pants would sit on an old-time bed with a beautiful shawl or blanket around her shoulders and gaze at him with doe eyes as he stood on the balcony brooding about the Parisian rain and so forth, and wouldn't Morse and his ilk stew in considerable juice when he sent home a postcard just to be nice. And wouldn't the village fall before him on repentant knees when T-shirts imprinted with his hard-won visage, his heraldic leonine visage, one might say, were available to all at the five and dime? And he held court on the porch in a white Whitmanesque suit while Mom hovered behind him, getting everything wrong about his work and proffering inane snacks to his manifold admirers. And wouldn't revenge be sweet when such former football players as Ned Wentz "'began begging him for lessons in the sonnet. "'And all that was required for these things to come to pass "'was some paper and pens and a quixotic blathering talent "'the likes of which would not be seen again soon,' "'the critics would all write, all of which he had in spades. "'And he rounded the last bend before the falls, "'euphoric with his own possibilities, and saw a canoe "'the color of summer leaves ram the steep upstream wall of the snag. "'The girls inside were thrown forward,' and shrieked with open mouths over frothing waves that would not let them be heard as the boat split open along some kind of seam and began taking on water in doomful fast quantities. Cummings stood stunned, his body electrified, hairs standing up on the back of his craning neck, thinking, I must do something. Their faces are bloody. But what? Such fast, cold water. Still, I must do something. And he stumbled over the berm uncertainly looking for help, but finding only a farm field of tall, dry corn. Morse began to run. In all probability, this was silly. In all probability, the girls were safe on shore, or if not, help was already on its way, although certainly it was possible that the girls were not safe on shore and help was not on its way, and in fact, it was even possible that the help that was on its way was him, which was worrisome because he had never been good under pressure and in a crisis often stood mentally debating possible options with his mouth hanging open. Come to think of it, it was possible, even probable, that the boat had already gone over the falls or hit the snag. He remembered the crew of the Barge Fat Chance, rescued via Hope Bridge in the early Carter years. He hoped several sweaty, decisive men were already on the scene and that one of them would send him off to make a phone call, although What if on the way, he forgot the phone number and had to go back and ask the sweaty, decisive man to repeat it? And what if this failure got back to Ruth and she was filled with shame and divorced him and forbade him to see the kids who didn't want to see him anyway because he was such a panicky screw-up? This was certainly not positive thinking. This was certainly an example of predestining failure via negativity because who could tell Maybe he would stand in line assisting the decisive men and incur a nasty rope burn and go home a hero wearing a bandage, which might cause Ruth to regard him in a more favorable sexual light, and they would stay up all night celebrating his new manhood and exchanging sweet words between bouts of energetic lovemaking, although what kind of thing was that to be thinking at a time like this, with children's lives at stake? He was bad, that was for sure. There wasn't an earnest bone in his body. Other people were simpler and looked at the world with clearer eyes, but he was self-absorbed and insincere and mucked everything up, and he hoped this wasn't one more thing, that he was destined to muck up, because mucking up a rescue was altogether different from forgetting to mail out the invitations to your son's birthday party, which he had recently done, although certainly they had spent a small fortune rectifying the situation, stopping just short of putting an actual pony on Visa. But the point was... This was serious and he had to bear down and throwing his thin legs out ahead of him, awkwardly bent at the waist, shirt tails trailing behind and bum knee hurting, he remonstrated himself to put aside all self-doubt and negativity and prepare to assist the decisive men in whatever way he could once he had rounded the bend and assessed the situation. But when he rounded the bend and assessed the situation, he found no rope bridge or decisive men. Only canoe coming apart at the base of the snag and two small girls in matching sweaters trying to bail with a bait bucket. What to do? This was a shocker. Go for help? Sprint to the outlet mall and call 911 from Knife World? There was no time. The canoe was sinking before his eyes. The girls would be drowned before he reached Route 8. Could one swim to the snag? Certainly one could not. No one ever had. Was he a good swimmer? He was mediocre at best. Therefore, he would have to run for help. But running was futile, because there was no time. He had just decided that, and swimming was out of the question. Therefore, the girls would die. They were basically dead. Although that couldn't be, that was too sad. What would become of the mother, who this morning had dressed them in matching sweaters? How would she cope? Soon her girls would be nude and bruised and dead on a table. It was unthinkable. He thought of Robert, nude and bruised and dead on a table. What to do? He fiercely wished himself elsewhere. The girls saw him now, and with their hands appeared to be trying to explain that they would be dead soon. My God! Did they think he was blind? Did they think he was stupid? Was he their father? Did they think he was Christ? They were dead. They were frantic, calling out to him, but they were dead, as dead as the ancient dead. And he was alive. He was needed at home. It was a no-brainer. No one could possibly blame him for this one. And making a low sound of despair in his throat, he kicked off his loafers and threw his long, ugly body out across the water.
0: That was Will Mackin, reading The Falls by George Saunders. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 1996 and was included in the collection Pastoralia, which was published by Riverhead Books in 2000. So, Will, we have these two characters here. Let's start with Morse. Morse, who has only one name, which is the name of a code that's often used by people in distress, um, <laughs> sending out an SOS. And right. what comes to my head is also that it's the, the second half of the word remorse. Um, hmm. Do you think that he is aptly named? Do you think his name was chosen for those reasons?
1: I. I hesitate to think that it was chosen. I think the name probably occurred to him just naturally without thinking about it. I didn't think about remorse, but definitely Morse Code. You know, the um, how the, the girls are in distress and, and they signal to him at one point And it's nice how that uh, comes together. And remorse, that works as well since he has a lot of regrets. <laughs> he does.
0: <laughs> um the first really amazing moment in the story is, you know, we get to know Morse in that first section. He's this just sad sack. He's living in a falling apart shack with lead paint. He makes this cardboard keyboard for his kid to practice piano on. And then his yeah. other kid eats it. Um, yeah. and, then, <laughs> and then we start this next section with this other character who refers to Morse as a smug member of the power elite and yeah. i hit that line and i thought okay what's happening here what does that do to how you read the story
1: you know i think it's interesting how another good sign of how this story is is so well put together is its timelessness you know now it seems that that kind of thing is happening where how how right wing culture will often characterize uh, left wing culture as as the power elite or the and it seems kind of opposite to me but they're very effective in doing it and it's just the way that Cummings believes, his, his belief is so strong that it makes it seem, it just distorts the image of Morse from what seems obvious to be the case that he's nowhere near the power elite. Mm-hmm. But but he sees him that way, so it's it's a reflection on Cummings and just his uh, inability to see the world for what it is.
0: Right, and how far removed he is, I suppose, from any actual even uh, attempt at a power right. elite. <laughs>
1: right right. and he's kind of an example of uh, of someone being so set in their convictions that they're a wacko you know uh, Morse mentioned that I think in the first the first paragraph one of the signs of, of being a wacko is being too sure of oneself
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and coming to the way he views himself uh, certainly has that he's you know he sees himself as this struggling genius who's gonna leave his mark yeah. on the world Um right. And then Morse sees him as this weird loser who, you know, doesn't work and lives with his mom. If we step back, how do we view these characters? How do you think George wants us to see them?
1: Well, I think he wants us to see both of them with compassion, ultimately. Um, Morse, of course, goes through the entire journey where he's self-doubt and, you know, he's constantly chipping away at himself. And in the end, he kind of transcends that. And Cummings, it's a little bit more complicated, I guess, but the way Moore sees Cummings, there's some compassion in in that. You know, he is kind of this loser, but then in his head, he's not. That adds a dimension to Cummings, I guess. It adds a dimension to his character that you wouldn't get if it was just a straight, oh, this guy is, a, you know, very stuck up, thinks very highly of himself type of characterization.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's true of... Basically, all of George's writing—that there's that sense of compassion for the people he's writing about. At the same time, he's incredibly funny about them, often at their expense. Um, <laughs> so, how do you think he manages to to walk that line?
1: I don't know. I mean, I wish I did. It's um, it's one of the most uh, pleasurable things about reading him, and and one of the mysteries. I, I think. You know, obviously, like in the details that that he mentions, some of the the ridiculous things like um, comes to mind, like Morse, he forgets to send out his son's birthday invitations. And he's just about to put a pony on Visa, like these things (laughs) that seem so desperate, but they're also just crazy. And it's uh, it's hilarious. And, you know, with with Cummings, it's the the voice and the uh, like he's he's obviously very passionate about what he's writing or what he's thinking about writing but I mean, it's so bad. It's just hilarious. The, the, what comes across, but then it's also, I mean, I admit to having some thoughts like that <laughs> and I self-edit them, of course, hopefully, thank God. But, um, you can't be a writer and not think of being great or of doing, or of writing something great or of aspiring towards it. And so that I, I'm sympathetic with Cummings on that level. And I think that, you know, he obviously cares about that about creating art um he, he's just bad at it and so <laughs> that um that's automatically uh sympathetic and and generates compassion I think
0: yeah yeah I mean I guess the level of ambition for these two men is very different uh morse is yeah. kind of just he wants he has some larger dreams but he he mostly just wants to get by as this sort of mid-level Office worker and be able to support his kids. And Cummings, you know, he's shooting for the moon. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think one of them is more likely to succeed than the other?
1: <laughs> well, I think so. It, Morris also has that part where he's, where he kind of wishes that he's done great things, you know, yeah. like that he could discover a vaccine or that he could be a POW and lead the other prisoners in rousing hymns. Um, <laughs> So he does have some ambition or at least he kind of knows what that would feel like, I guess, but he's, um, well, I think in the end, um, you could argue that Morse is successful. Uh, Cummings, he, he has more energy and more ambition. It seems at least outwardly, or, you know, in his head, he has more ambition, but he also runs up against a dry field of corn, you know, and that's it. That's the end of his moral dilemma. And Morse, of course, He throws his long, ugly body out over the water. And so he's the one who kind of succeeds at escaping himself, at escaping what's in his head. And he sacrifices himself almost in this way um, for the two girls in the canoe.
0: Right. We have a lot of buildup, which is really mostly just getting to know these two characters. And then they're both immediately immersed in the same fraught situation on the basis of what you read up to that point, how would you expect them each to respond?
1: Well, I would expect Cummings to kind of respond the way he did. I would expect him to stay in his head and, and you know, notice that their faces are bloody, you know, like uh, kind of exaggerate the situation to the point where it doesn't seem as real. But for Morse, you could tell it's, I mean, it's real. He imagines his son. Um, nude and dead on the table, yeah. and uh, it, it's very real for him. Whereas for Cummings, it's—I think—it's just the dramatic vision he has constantly, kind of going in his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, it might wind up being good fodder for a story, but it's not something that he—I would expect him to have to re- react to in the real world.
0: Yeah, the difficulty is that in his internal musings, he's—he's he's the hero.
1: Right, he's already the hero, yeah. so. Yeah. I'm not sure how to take that the field of corn though. What do you think of that?
0: Well, I'm not sure how to take the entire ending. And that's I think maybe the miracle of the story, maybe what you you yeah. thought of as impossible is that we don't get right. this ending. We mm-hmm. we get to this point and we don't know what happens. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's possible. Oh, what do you think happens? <laughs> <laughs> Before I give the possibilities.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I like not knowing what happens. I like it ending with him suspended over the water. I mean, he's committed. His body is long. He's stretched out. He's, or the way I imagine it, at least, he's kind of looking at his reflection in the water. And I think it's a really beautiful image of how he's able to escape himself and and his self-doubt and... um. I like it ending there. I could see it ending where he saves the girls, although that doesn't seem likely, I mean, with all the odds stacked against him. But the fact that that he dove out into the water, he's already heroic. He's already kind of committed himself to the universal versus the self. He's putting himself out there for the good of mankind in a way.
0: Mm -hmm. He's inventing his vaccine or, you know... Averting right. the assassination attempt as his earlier ambitions. Um, right. It's interesting to me because I think in your reading, this is an ending because we have an I answer. So. We have an answer. We know one's a hero and one's not a hero. Um, one's
1: kind of stymied, yes. There is a mention early in the story where Morse distracts himself by singing Stars and Stripes Forever. And... um and, and slapping then, his legs. And slapping his <laughs> legs, right. <laughs> it's a very rousing tune. And, and then Cummings winds up there in, the, in the, uh, the dry field of corn, which isn't Amber Waves of Grain, which isn't Stars and Stripes Forever either. But it, is, it, it got me thinking about that. Here's this kind of off image of the patriotic, of the brave, of, the, of that song. you know the, mm-hmm. um, And it kind of seemed a fitting end for Cummings as well.
0: Yeah. I think you're reading, in a sense, for something conclusive about the characters, and you get there. If you're reading for plot, you don't get to an end. Um, Right. You get to a mystery, you know, because Mm -hmm. uh, Morse, maybe he saves the girls, gets them out. He's a big hero. Maybe he dies. Maybe they all die. Maybe Cummings comes back. Maybe Cummings dives in, too. You know, who knows? Um, Yeah. Anything could happen. The most likely is that they're dead. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, he says already the right. girls are dead in the water. You know, they're they are mm-hmm. already in a sense dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like this idea that we've actually already got our ending. That our ending is not do the girls live or die. Our ending is who rose to the occasion.
1: Exactly. Maybe a lesser writer would go on a couple beats, but that it's almost unexpected. Like when I described a story as impossible, you're absolutely right about the ending is what does it. Everything leading up to that point is still amazing, but the ending is what it just absolutely tweaks it into impossibility because first of all, you don't see it coming. And secondly, it shouldn't be an ending, but it is.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You know, the way George sets the situation up, it goes from bad to worse. It's not just that they're racing down the river in a canoe with no oars then they hit a rock they're starting to sink then their canoe split in half and they're bailing and <laughs> screaming and their faces are bloody like yeah. it doesn't really even get worse but no. what he's setting these two characters up for is basically the trolley dilemma you know where you can you can get to the switch and the train's heading for five people but if you pull a Leverett will head on another track and only hit one person, and do you do it? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Except that the one person here is the men themselves, you know? Right. It's, <laughs> uh, so they have to decide between saving themselves or uh, saving the girls or possibly not saving anyone. Mm-hmm. And I think as readers reading it, we probably all have this doubt as to whether we would jump in.
1: Yes, Absolutely. And, and, you know, the self is tricky. Like all these reasons he's giving for not doing it, everything that builds up basically to that last line in the last paragraph, he's, he's not their father. He's not Christ. He's not, you know, all these things that he's convincing himself he's needed at home. He is needed at home. And yet still he decides to throw himself out over the water.
0: Just everything he says is true. It makes no sense for him to jump in.
1: It okay. makes no sense. And that's why it's so unexpected. You think, oh, he's talking himself out of it. And it's going to be a story about even deeper remorse, you know, in the end of how he has to live with himself now and now convince himself every day why he didn't do it, because presumably the girls wouldn't survive. There's a possibility that that's changed, that he may save them. And at the very least, if he doesn't, he may still be seen as a hero for trying against impossible odds. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think we have, like, a little bit of a clue at the very beginning of the story, you know, where Morse is crossing the Catholic schoolyard and worrying that he's going to be seen as a pervert. He's always worried about how people see him, what people Mm -hmm. think of him. He's worried that Cummings doesn't like him. Right after thinking, you know, oh, God, don't let him collar me, then he doesn't collar him. And he thinks, wait, (laughs) doesn't he like me? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So there's, like, a slight question as to whether he's jumping in to perform an act of real heroism or whether he's just worried about how he'll be seen forever if he doesn't jump in.
1: That's a good point. I think, you know, in that first paragraph where he's walking past the kids and he's trying to get his face right. So (laughs) they don't see him as a pervert or as a grouch. um, It ends by him saying humility is the thing. And I think the humility that he expresses at the very end is, I mean he is not self important at all he the things that he's kind of building up towards the reasons he's giving himself for not jumping in all have some degree of importance to them. He's needed at home, for example like he's the he's the breadwinner perhaps or or you know his kids need him as as they grow older i mean all these mm-hmm. things are true, but in the end, I don't think it's that he's concerned about how other people see him. I think it's a matter of humility. You know, he he is no longer sees his own importance or his concern for how other people see him or how he sees himself or how he should be. All that is set aside. And uh, he kind of commits himself to this brave act.
0: Yeah, and it's true that throughout the story, Every time he starts to go negative, he pulls himself back. Right, right. when he starts to feel bitter or complain, that he stops himself, says, "Oh, you know, I I need to be grateful for what I have, or you know, what I have is great." Um, mm-hmm. his son may not be as brilliant as the as the kid next door, but <laughs> you know, how can he yeah. say mean things about his son? You know, st- he stops himself. <laughs> um, yeah. So it may be that in that moment of having all of these good reasons why he shouldn't do this thing that's terrifying, that he stops himself there.
1: Yeah, he he does. And, you know, he kicks his loafers off before. So there is a little bit of, I mean, there's just that moment of preparation. He doesn't seem at all prepared for it up until that point. And, He's trying to talk himself out of the decision the entire time. You know, he's hoping for the line of decisive men, the the barge that he talks about. And I'm not exactly sure if that's fictional or real. But what I imagine is, you know, a bunch of people kind of arms locked in the water, reaching out and people kind of following their way back to land on uh, on a human bridge, mm-hmm. <laughs> pulling themselves through the water. That's what I imagine. At least I think that's what happened in the Potomac, too, when that Airplane fell in the in the water there, um, so he he's trying to talk himself out of what I think he already knows needs to be done.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the Potomac. I was reading an interview with George that he gave a few years ago, where he was talking about this story, and he said, right after I finished a story called The Falls. I read an article about a phenomenon where a person will see somebody in distress and suddenly instinctively rush off to save them. And in that process, as they describe it later, their self momentarily disappears. I -hmm. remember reading the testimony of a guy who leapt into the Potomac back in the 1980s when a plane had crashed there, and he mentioned this, there was suddenly no distinction between himself and the drowning person. That's a powerful notion that we are capable of that sort of feeling. So he says he read this after writing the story, so it didn't inform the story, but perhaps he already had that idea.
1: Yeah, the idea of the kind of the universality of of that kind of sacrifice.
0: Yeah, the idea that at that moment, Morse doesn't see himself as different from the girls. They're all kind of one. And so, of course, he can't not dive in.
1: Yeah, and I mean he does have that thought where he he says, "Do they think I'm Christ?" I mean, that kind of seems like a leap, but he, you know, he's walking past the Catholic school in the beginning and you know, I know that George has a has a Catholic school background and that informs his writing pretty deeply. And so yes, it does seem to be like that he, you know, by checking all these things off, he's kind of this is how he's approaching that universal moment where you might even argue that him and Cummings are the same at that point. Cummings maybe just turned the wrong direction and wound up in a field of corn, whereas he's going to leap out over the water. Again, we don't know what Cummings would have decided. I doubt that he would have decided to make the same choice, but the the feeling that he's describing, I think Saunders achieves that in the last line because, you know, when you question, did he live? Did he die? You know, and you reach the point where at least – for me, the first reading, the, the ending struck me as so beautiful. And I think it was for that reason, because it almost generates that feeling. It almost gives you that aha moment, like, oh, yes, that's possible. And then then right after that, you wonder, like, well, did he make it? Did he not make it? What happened to the girls? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you go kind of like right back into, you know, Morris's yeah. thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. This the Catholic reference. There's also something sort of Buddhist about it, which is mm-hmm. George's present rather than his childhood. This sense of these beings just sort of floating, you know, it doesn't matter what body they're in. Right. Um, and, and inhabiting this karmic space. I suppose, you know, Morris runs through all the possible outcomes in his head. He understands that if he tries to get help, it will be too late. Cummings mm-hmm. maybe doesn't understand that. I mean, you do get the sense he's running for help, but then he gets up mm-hmm. and he's just in an empty field. Um, mm-hmm. And the question is, what does he do then? Mm-hmm. We don't know. And and he didn't have the selflessness to run through the options in his mind. He's completely immersed in his self.
1: <laughs> yes, right. And, you know, that's why I think it's a fitting end. It It seems to fit his... Kind of dramatic and internal view of the world. And I wouldn't expect him to take any sort of action that would, you know, have any sort of consequence in the real world. Whereas, whereas Morse has experienced consequence many times. You know, he had his piano repossessed. He, <laughs> his daughter ate the keyboard. He almost bought a pony on Visa. Like he, <laughs> he understands the implications of of bad decisions, but, you know, I'm not so sure Cummings does. He lives with his mom, you know, maybe his mom just protects him from all that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas Morse has to deal with his wife's infatuation with the karate teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And and his round pimply back, yeah.
1: Yeah, right. And his blue ass.
0: (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, well, luckily, (laughs) you know, there was a distraction from that. I mean, I suppose in a way, maybe he's atoning for having felt... Pleased that Len Beck floated off down the falls.
1: Yeah, there's a parallel there with that. You know, Len Beck, I, I assume he was, I think he even says so. He was like a some kind of superstar swimmer or football player, or I forget. But anyway, he had this cachet in the in the school and got drunk and decided to swim out to the snag. And and he, I would argue, Len Beck, saw himself as heroic in that moment. He was gonna do it. You know, it was this thing that nobody had ever done. And so now he's going to make his mark in the world or start, you know, early. And he didn't make it. And um, good thing it it eclipsed the Blue Assers Club. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's on his mind, on Morse's mind, when he makes his decision. Not just the humiliation that he suffered. I mean, that part probably is forgotten. But the the fact that, you know, someone like Len Beck couldn't do it. um, Right. You know, he knew how impossible it was. There was proof.
0: Yeah, and maybe in a way, because he was initially happy about Beck's death, there is some oh, remorse, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. maybe, yes. maybe that drives him not to let these girls die.
1: Yeah, that that definitely could. I mean, he did say he felt he felt happy about it, uh, about Len Beck's death, and mm-hmm. at least for a little while, it's something something like that. So, yeah, I could see that, definitely.
0: Yeah. What do you think about the construction of this story, which, you know, not a standard building block for a story. You know, there's there's almost no event. 99% of the story is just telling us who these men are, introducing us to these characters, and then Mm. one final dramatic event and the story's over. Do you think it's... Difficult to structure a story that way. I mean, it's not do you think he knew what he was doing when he sat down to write?
1: I, I doubt that he had the whole thing lined out in his head. But the magic of it is that it appears reading it, it appears easy or not I don't want to say easy or simple. It just appears like effortless, but it obviously isn't. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's uh it's a very unusual form. Um the only answer I have for how he worked through it is the one that he frequently gives is just kind of line by line and following the energy of the story. And there's so much energy in the internal discussions that these two men have with each, with themselves that really just kind of fleshes out the backstory. It fleshes out the possibilities and it's hilarious.
0: Yeah. I think about, you know, Cummings isn't, really all that necessary to the story, but what a different story it would be if it were just Morse taking this walk.
1: Right. I, I don't know. I mean, I think when I think about the story as a writer, I would say Cummings is absolutely essential just to have that, that other pole to work against. Because, it, it, you know, in my mind, Cummings is very... Um, he is not of the material world. He turns everything into an image or a metaphor or, you know, he tries to like squeeze some dramatic juice out of everything he looks at, the fat cloud over the bridge. That's one of my favorite sentences. I like, he almost seems kind of ephemeral himself. And then contrasted with Morse, you know, Morse has these concrete things happen to him and it's going to drive towards a concrete ending. Mm -hmm. And I like the contrast between them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm wondering: Is this a dark night of the soul for George that he's split himself into the man who's a husband and a father, who works a job, and the man who thinks he has uh, the ability to write and <laughs> and, and has the ego? Yeah. Uh, you could sort of see uh, a dividing line and him saying, "Well, which of these two would save the kids?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> Who's the better man here?
1: Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he must argue with himself all the time.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because it's quite an early story for him, relatively early, 1996. I guess it was in his second collection. Still at a point Mm -hmm. where where he was sort of choosing a path ahead.
1: Yeah, and I remember reading an interview um, where he talked about this story, and he said it was such a departure from his normal way of constructing a story it's not a story that you would expect to find in in civil war land and bad decline it doesn't necessarily have the absurdity to it that some of those stories so effectively have and use i mean there are absurd elements definitely but it's really it's it's a story of a of a man walking along a river and and he's faced with this moral choice and what does he do to boil it down too simplistically i think that's it but I remember he read this at one of the reading nights in, in St. Petersburg, and um, I just remember like the in the discussion, or, or as he talked about it, described it beforehand. He just said like he was excited because it felt like a departure for him, like something new. And that definitely comes across, I think.-hmm:
0: Well, thank you so much, Will. Well, thank you. George Saunders is the author of 11 books, including the story collections in Persuasion Nation and 10th of December, the novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the Man Booker Prize in 2017, and the nonfiction work, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, which came out earlier this year. He's been publishing stories in The New Yorker since 1992. Will Mackin is the author of the story collection, Bring Out the Dog, which was published in 2018. His first story in the magazine, Kattakoppen, came out in 2013 and was included in the Best American Short Stories the following year. You can download more than 170 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.